Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. The male research model is what we've based a lot of our biophysical research on, including in neuroscience. So it was only in 2016 that researchers began to even look at the question of how stress intersects with health and development in the female brain versus the male brain. The reason it took so long is that scientists wanted to keep those pesky hormones out of it. So as this group of female neurobiologists began to really ask that question, a lot of things came to light. And it turns out that there are very big differences in the way in which stress begins to shift the brain and the body in the face of unmitigated, unrelenting stress in the female brain as puberty comes in. So to answer your question, Carrie, um, we're starting to understand this new science in the context of today's epidemic of depression, anxiety, and self-harm, and suicidal ideation, and suicide attempts in our young girls. So lots of things are playing into this, and I'll run through a few. Number one, Number one, childhood, we've lost what I call in the book, the in-between years, that little magical time Carrie referred to. We think of it as between seven and 13, that time where kids need to be able to figure out what they like and who they want to hang out with and what their own thoughts are and hang in the backyard and stare at the clouds in the sky and figure out how to be in friend groups and safe ways Now everything is coming in at kids really, really quickly in terms of everything is more competitive and hierarchical, right? So we have kids in club sports by the time they're 11. We have kids, you know, the middle school is kind of like the new high school and kids are constantly getting this extrinsic evaluation about how well they're doing on the playing field in the schoolroom. And... We've brought in social media. We were supposed to, girls are, all children are not supposed to be on social media until they're 13. That's what the platforms say, but we know that girls start joining around eight or nine. And here they're being extrinsically evaluated. Girls are being sexualized so much earlier than they used to be. There's so little distinction now between being a girl And being a woman and social media has just ripped that line and blurred that line and taken it away. So we know that as girls get on social media, they're being sexualized more. They're critiqued more than boys for their face, their appearance, more extrinsic evaluation and layer this on top of the fact that puberty is happening six years earlier than it did in 1800 and four to five years earlier than it did in just 1900. So in all these ways, those middle years of development have been lost to girls. And you know what? We ha- That's a problem. It's a problem because we want adolescence to happen before puberty. 
That's really important because the brain wires and fires up based on all of our experiences, good or bad. And it does that during adolescence as we have that time. The prefrontal cortex develops to figure out what do I want to respond to? How do I want to respond? Is this safe or not safe? And even how to ask for help. But now puberty is happening before adolescence. And the brain hasn't wired and fired up yet to put the stressors that are coming in earlier, faster, and harder in context. And so that's what we're beginning to see. That's what the female neurobiologists who have gone out and done this kick butt research told me in all of my conversations with them. Yes, it is. Um, I'm so glad that they've done that kick butt research. And the irony to me, too, and, and I don't remember whether you dressed this in the book or not, but the irony that the girls are coming into this so much earlier, and it was true for me, that it happened at the same time I was going through menopause. And I just think that's one of God's or our creators. <laughs> Those bizarre jokes on women is, you know, uh, it's another way we pay. <laughs> I think. Um, but the... the what you've shown, and you did just kind of address it, the greater impact of toxic childhood stress on girls. Um, but I'm wondering, in the book, you did um, have three girls with whom you spoke, and one of them, Delicia, uh, is African-American. And gosh, I just her story was so compelling to me, um, having a mother who uh, has um, intellectual disabilities, that she pretty much had to get herself up to school every morning, um, fought with weight, fought with all manner of issues. But um, the, the issue of racism, uh, if, if you could address that, because it is, you know, an elephant in the room always. Um, it's not an elephant in the room. It is something that we all must embrace um, if we are to address inequity. But the, the special challenges uh, with neurodevelopment that uh, maybe black and brown girls go through because of that added layer of racism and the toxic stress it creates. Yeah, so absolutely. So what we understand and we'll begin to talk about um, in more depth, I'm sure, is that when we see these stresses layer up as puberty comes in, in girls and estrogen surges, and we'll talk about why that that can be good and that can be bad in a minute, I'm sure. Um, we know that the more unmitigated stressors that girls face in their environment, the more we begin to see these shifts in the body and brain. And it makes complete sense, right? That if stress is stacking up, and there is a felt inherent sense of unsafety, which is what girls told me, the girls that I spent time with, and which we see in girls' lived experience in the world today. It makes sense that if you grow up with systemic and structural racism, that that is going to increase your sense of unsafety. Now, Across development, childhood and the teen years, the brain is really a detective, right? It's asking, am I safe or not safe? A lot 
depends on how the brain answers that question. And if the answer is, I'm not really safe, whether it's by what's happening in your living room, at the kitchen table, on your street, in your community, in your school, in the world at large, then the brain, as it comes into puberty, begins to take into account, kind of like if you think, of a computer chess game factoring all of the past moves on the chessboard in as it determines its very next move. The brain factors all of that unsafety, all of that hardship, all of those threats in as it decides how to wire up for life because the brain needs to know what kind of world am I going out into here? And if the answer is a highly stressful, unsafe world, which is even more the case, for girls of color, then the brain is going to wire and fire up based on this feeling, this certainty that it is not safe out there waiting for the next bad thing to happen. And why wouldn't it, right? And that is a problem because a brain that wires up for future harm is a brain in which we begin to see changes in the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex, other areas of the brain that we can literally see on brain scans, these patterns are associated with depressive and anxious behaviors. So I hope that answers your question. Well, but say this too, it's very, very helpful, but what happens to the brain that gets stuck in this flight, fight, freeze when this brain goes to school? I mean, I would go to school stuck in flight, fight, freeze. And <laughs> who is that space cadet in the corner zoning out? So well, we what know to this brain. We know what happens when you are um, in uh, fight, flight, freeze over time. And really, I like to think of it as something we call chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress. What I call cuts. If you know writers, you know we love acronyms. Um, so cuts are chronic, unpredictable, toxic stressors in kids' lives, meaning that stress is unpredictable. It keeps coming, but you don't know when. You don't know when it's coming. And we have really good evidence in research that chronic stress affects the brain very differently than, than expected stress. And there are reasons for that. But the way that it plays out for children is that over time, that begins to shift the stress response, which is very tied to our immune response, into overactivation. You could think of it, writers like analogies, right, um, as a garden hose, and you turn it on enough times, that spigot kind of gets stuck in that on position. And this resets a child's stress point and their well-being for life. Because when we turn that stress response on high through cuts, chronic, unpredictable, toxic stressors, what we're doing is we're sending the message to the body and the brain that we need to gear up also on a physical level for potential harm. Yeah. And when that happens, genes begin to shift and turn on in the brain and the body for mental health and physical health disorders. So as we are raising children and mentoring them, we really hope that we'll keep that dimmer switch kind of turned off 
that gene dimmer switch that turns genes on epigenetically or keeps them turned off. I know I'm mixing my metaphors here between garden hoses and dimmer switches, but <laughs> it, hopefully it's working in any event. So that, that genes are kind of epigenetics is kind of like a dimmer switch. It can turn on based on the environment or it can stay off. And as we raise our children, as we mentor kids, as we teach kids, what we really want to do is keep that dimmer switch down on those genes we don't want to see expressed epigenetically. And we want to kind of turn it up on the genes that build resilience and strength and autonomy and self-esteem. But when those stressors are chronic and unpredictable and never end, and kids go in the classroom, parts of the brain that need to pay attention and focus are turned off because that stress response is turned on. It's hard for kids when they're caught in chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress to even like see the pretty, the light falling on the trees to respond appropriately to friends trying to make friends or join in laughter in the classroom. So all those parts of the brain kind of go offline to keep being prepared for the next bad thing. Right. And that is our brain's negativity bias, again, that wants to desperately to keep us alive. So what's trying to save us in the wild, so to speak, were we being hunted by a bear, is what is keeping us, keeping that prefrontal cortex from being able to, to be online and learn and help us be protected by having these lessons. Our brains in this way are not wired to mix numbers and letters together. Algebra does not compute <laughs> when we're offline um, for a lot of people, I don't think. But um, I really appreciate that and, and remember thinking that we're either wired for chaos or we're wired for peace, wired for health, um, or wired for distress. And the problems with some of that wiring for distress, too, is, is and you go into this in other books about inflammation and how this sets us up for inflammation and, um, and even some uh, epigenetically, um, some people are more wired to have uh, issues with autoimmune disorders, heart problems, all manner of other. Well, you know, Carrie, I just want to jump in here and say two things that come to mind as you're saying that. One is, um, as I write a lot about in Girls in the Brink, we've come to understand through recent research that social and emotional stressors are in fact the most likely to activate that stress response that we're talking about. And there are reasons for that to explain. We would have to travel way, 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 way back in time to when we were hunter-gatherers. And social cooperation was super, super, super important to our survival and that of our progeny. And so at the very, very, very first signs of being socially or emotionally excluded or dissed or made fun of or anybody rolling their eyes about you over the communal fire, the body began to prepare for physical harm because way back, the being dissed or left out or in worst case, ostracized, 
meant you would encounter physical harm. So our immune systems have evolved over millennia to prepare at the first sign of social distress and emotional distress for physical harm. And this is really plays into what we're talking about here today. And then estrogen comes in at puberty and it makes all this much more complicated as I'm sure we'll get into. <laughs> so, so when a girl picks up her phone and goes to Instagram or whatever and sees that somebody has dissed her on Instagram oh. or she walks into the classroom and there's that. Uh, what is the is that like from the standpoint of being physically attacked? Um, is it a similar brain response to having been physically attacked or? Well, when it, the answer could fill three chalkboards, but to make it simple, um, when the brain encounters social and emotional stress, the immune system, as I said, begins to ramp up and um, produce more inflammatory factors in the body and the brain. So the body, the brain has its own immune system where uh, stress begins to affect the activity of cells in the brain that can respond to stress by overpruning. So when any child, male, female, anywhere on the gender spectrum, doesn't matter, encounter social and emotional stress, it begins to send messages to the body to prepare for physical danger. And so what's really interesting about this is that we have what scientists call here an evolutionary mismatch. Why do I say that? Way back when, when we time traveled back in time, yeah, somebody rolls their eyes at you, you better be really on your toes. You better be thinking really hard how to protect yourself and your children because at the edge of that tribe, at the edge of that group, you are more likely to be picked off by predators or marauding tribes. You are more likely to suffer from the elements, which also could bring in the likelihood of infection. You are more likely to face poor nutrition, starvation. So the brain clocks I'm not safe. And it made sense back then. But in today's world, it's an evolutionary mismatch, right? It feels like 40 people making fun of you on your post on TikTok or being asked to take off more clothes on TikTok to get more likes or the fact that girls are making fun of you on uh, Instagram and boys are coming in and making fun of your face or critiquing you for other things. It feels like that is going to lead to physical harm, even though it probably won't. In most cases, it won't. The body and the brain don't know the difference. And this is a real problem. And then the more that the brain stays ruminating over this, the more the brain and body are still kicking out that high stress response as if physical harm is on its way. So it's an evolutionary mismatch between then and now. And look, social media has been around a very, very short time. Our brains wired up this way in community long before social media came on the scene. And over time, 
even a very well-loved girl's sense of herself, the good things we might be saying at the dinner table or the love she has from her family and friends will begin to diminish in the face of this ongoing extrinsic evaluation and critiquing. Right. And now you give us some wonderful ways that we can help girls stop the rumination. And it really starts with us as parents. And talk a little bit about how we as parents, if we're ruminators, it's likely that our daughters are going to be ruminators. So we got to start with ourselves. Will you say a little bit about that? Sure. So ruminators, um, social scientists, actually the scientific father of social safety theory, which I've just been saying in a nutshell, uh, George Slavich is out at UCLA and head of the UCLA Stress Lab and a great friend to all things having to do with adversity in childhood. Um, he is largely responsible for enormous grants from the um, state of California to study the intersection of stress and childhood. He talks a lot about um, rumination and how um, a couple of things, because we've been talking in a way about all children, but I want to talk specifically about girls at puberty when I talk about this, how for females way back when, this attention, this spidey sense, uh, to borrow from Spider-Man, to be attuned to the first signs of emotional dismissing or being left out, that these are the females who survived and from which we all descended here today. The bigger your spidey sense, the greater your ability to suss out that something is coming. And George Slavich theorizes that females developed a particularly acute spidey sense, which required rumination to think through whether you're being dissed and what to do about it because females are responsible not just for childbearing, but maternal warmth, feeding children, keeping them safe in the tribe. And so now we're going to talk about puberty when estrogen comes in because we kind of left that out. And I think a lot of people may be sitting here going, well, this sounds like it could be true for girls and boys. And yes, Yes, I'm the mother of a son and I'm the mother of a daughter. I care about all kids and boys are really struggling today too. But here's where we begin to see that super big difference between how girls do and boys do as they enter puberty. Estrogen comes surging in. Estrogen, now that we're talking about evolution, packs with it a lot of evolutionary advantages. It is a It is our immune system's magnifier, magnifying system to help us when stressors happen, including infections. It means that it's the, it's the reason why when we get vaccines, women have a more robust response to vaccines. But in the face of unrelenting stress or cuts, which we talked about, estrogen stops being this evolutionary advantage. And, and to just underscore its advantages, it's the reason why as women, for those women who are on this call, we can do everything a man can do during, stay awake just as long, if not longer, usually, honestly. And we can do everything in a smaller body with smaller organs and still have room for this thing called a uterus. Estrogen amps up. It's a master regulating hormone. 
But when it comes in and there are high stressors in the environment at puberty, it also can flip to an evolutionary disadvantage. And what I mean by that is it ramps up this stress response that we talked about, and it ramps up those immune processes, which can lead to mental health and physical health disorders. It is the reason why after puberty, women face three, four, and in some autoimmune diseases, five, six times the rate of autoimmune disease than men. And it's also the reason why the same number of adverse childhood experiences in a girl's life are linked to a greater likelihood of depression and anxiety after puberty. It's also the reason why more women have long COVID. So I wanted to really set the stage for that because when we talk about rumination, what we're really talking about is also this stress response. Rumination is highly correlated with depression and anxiety. And it turns out that those inflammatory levels that we see rise in the face of social stress, they stay high even when the event has passed and when we're just thinking about it. So I think rumination is a really important topic. We wanna make sure that we're doing lots of things in girls' lives to break that rumination cycle. We can even see differences in the male-female brain in puberty where the left amygdala, which we associate with high rumination, is more perfused in girls after social and emotional stress. It's less perfused and active in boys. Boys tend to take more action, not always wise action, but more action in the face of social stress. Girls tend to turn it on themselves, right? And so we want to stop that. And And it makes sense when you think of this sexist society that we came of age in as women and that girls are now finding amplified 24-7 on media and social media. It makes sense that girls turn it inward because we are growing up in a society whose voice lashes out at girls and women all the time. So girls tend to take rumination in and turn against themselves. So it's really important. And I have 15 different antidotes. Carrie, what's one of your favorites? I love um, encouraging the sense of self-mastery. And I love how um, going to joy and wonder could bust that rumination cycle, Um, you know, getting into the solution. I love what you did with your, with your kids about, about one. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll just run through a lot of the strategies top of mind. I'm going to leave out some because I can't keep all 15 in my head at the same time. Um, Well, you mentioned wonder. So wonder is a twofer because we can start wonder when our kids are really young, right? And a lot of times as parents, we're jumping in and we're giving our ideas about things. And that makes sense, right? We want our kids to have a clear sense of the world and share our clear sense of the world. But kids have what um, philosopher Alison Gopnik calls a lantern-like consciousness. And a lot of times when we jump in with our ideas, we kind of cut that off. As adults, we have more of a flashlight-like 
consciousness. We just want to get it done, get this done. But in that lantern-like consciousness, the brain is really open and pliable and can come up with a lot of new ideas to help solve it's solve what's happening. So we want to encourage when we're talking to our kids, hey, wonder what that bird feels like in the on, in the rain, rather than telling kids. And as kids get older, this is really, really important for two reasons. One, they internalize that voice of wonder. They don't lose their lantern-like consciousness. And they can begin to apply it to things like, hey, I wonder why my friend Sally texted a a shot of her cleavage to Harry, you know, um, and that voice of wonder and wondering becomes more the guiding voice within them than the voice of everyone around them. And we can also begin to apply that voice as social media comes in and develop social media literacy. Hey, wonder what this individual's life is like when she's not an influencer on Instagram. I wonder who's paying for this. I wonder how this platform makes money and begin to put a conversation that distances our children a little bit from this hard, fast, hot world that's heating up environmentally, socially, and politically and coming at them very quickly and put a little bit of a spacer there so we can keep some of those breaks engaged. So that is one of the 15 antidotes. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. That is one of the 15 antidotes. Um, yeah, I loved developing a voice of resistance. You oh, yeah. know, when, when Julia was able to say to her dad, you know, let's not have the creepy uncle over if he's yeah. staring at my breasts. Maybe it's not about me. It's about him. Yeah, and- I love that story. These girls are so fantastic. And mm, I just felt so in love with them in this process. But yeah, I talk a lot about reverse engineering sexism, right? Because we talked about this sexist voice that we all come of age with in a country where a lot is happening around women and women's bodies and women still can't be president. And girls internalize the societal voice in addition to the voices on social media or the voices 
um, in their any negative voices in their communities. So I talk a lot about reverse engineering that voice. There's some simple ways to do it. We know statistically that girls, half of girls are don't feel comfortable talking to their dads about difficult issues, right? And so being able to blow off your dad in the kitchen. Now I've raised a son and a daughter and I have lots of friends with lots of kids. And I think most mothers who are on this call would probably agree. I'll just raise my hand. I'll be the first. My daughter definitely feels more able to come at me than she does my husband. And my husband's not a scary guy. He's the nicest guy in the world. But somehow this internalized sexism happens in our own homes. So one of the things I write about is making sure your daughter knows she can blow off her dad and and not in a horrible way. We have to have limits. We All the things we do for kids have to include limits. But to disagree with him the same way she might disagree with her mom. And the other is when we have people coming into our lives with creepy sexism and it's safe to speak back, speak back, model this for your kids, for your sons and your daughters. Creepy uncle is watching TV with you and says something, or maybe he's not creepy. Maybe he's just a jerk. You know, oh, that girl playing basketball, she would look a lot better if she was wearing a bikini. Just be real quiet and say, what? And let him repeat it again. What? And let him repeat it again. Or if he can't stop, you know, what, you tell me that's sexist? You being so sensitive. I don't know why I'm putting on this accent, honestly, but, <laughs> um, you know, it says it's working. it's working. Maybe he's, you know, you're being so sexist and you say, well, um, you know, or you're being so sensitive. Well, that's what people say when they're being insensitive. And, you know, well, you you feel it sounds like you you're you're too busy to talk. about. Yeah. My daughter and I are too busy breaking the patriarchy, dude, to sit here and listen to this crap. Now, again, and I have like 50 examples in the book, but um, one thing I want to underscore is we want to make sure we teach our daughters, especially to only do this when they are safe, right? This isn't when you're out alone on the street at night or if you're feeling unsafe at a party at college. This is in situations where you feel safe. And what I learned from the girls who were my teachers in this book was that doing this changed them inside, right? It began to change. And over time, we know when we change our responses, we stop ruminating, we take action. And there are just so many different actions we can help girls take so that we break their automatic responses to the stressors that are coming to them and we bring down their body and brain stress machinery because as the world grows more toxic, this is really important. We need to bring in more ways to dial down that body and brain stress machinery. Right. And, and I do love that you talk so much about the positive childhood experiences. And I would think that for a girl to see her mother um, defend herself and her daughter in that way, or for a girl to be able to defend herself 
in that way in a safe environment would be a positive experience because, you know, and we've talked about them being able to talk to families about feelings, your family members, being able to blow off your dad, you know, in a, in a way that's safe, um, knowing that your family stood by you in difficult times, um, feeling safe and protected by an adult in the home, you, you know, your mom, knowing you can go to her at any time. A sense of belonging at school, that one's tough. Feeling supported by friends. I love the ones that happen in community, you know, because I think we can teach those. And I think you talk about, you know, maybe how we can um, can do more of that uh, in community. And we can talk about that more as we go through the book club part of things. But Natalie, you had a couple of questions, and I know we're we're a little behind, but I want Natalie because she's got- That would be my fault. I tend to- No, no, no. I, I, I ruminated on the brain science too long and didn't get to solutions. That's me. No, we're, we'll have lots of time in the book. Okay. All right. So Natalie, you've got two teenage girls at home. You're watching this in real time. Uh, tell us what questions you had as you were reading this book, which I know you loved as much as I did. I mean, we both talked about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <gasps> Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, it was so timely for me. I have a 15 year old and a, and an almost 18 year old. Um, and what I really appreciate that you wrote this <laughs> and I'm, I'm lots of notes I'm going to share with my husband, but one challenge that you mentioned in the book that I really related to in my children is the drive for perfectionism Sure. and how I just, I wonder how parents can help prevent and or counteract this in girls in particular, because I see it in not just my own children, but in a lot of other girls, when it seems like teachers, schools, colleges, and society expect so much from kids, and in particular, girls right now. So I would love a little thought on that. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. And really, when you think about everything we've talked about and that stress machinery dialing up in girls' lives, largely in the face of extrinsic evaluation is kind of what we've been talking about. Really, what we want to do is, is reboot the way that we're approaching our kids' interests and the things that they find fascinating about the world with intrinsic motivation. So we know, <laughs> I've been on book tour a lot, so if I lose my voice, I have cough drops. Um, we know that over time in our society, we have begun to see a lot more, uh, uh, many more issues with perfectionism, but perfectionism really comes from that extrinsic evaluation. And what we want to do is let our kids and, you know, follow their interests. We don't want to sign them up for a lot of things as they come into adolescence and through puberty. We want to ask them what interests them and we want to let them go and do those things, even if it isn't what we have in mind for them. Right. And we want to let them try and fail at lots of different things. And as they begin to find the things that they do swimmingly, and they will, if we stay out of it, we want to step back. We don't want to get involved in their projects. We want to begin to respond to their efforts in the world. And this includes across any efforts, academically, whatever, by dialing up on the positive and dialing down on evaluation. But when I say positive, what I don't mean is you're the best. You came in first. You got the award. You're the cum laude. I knew you would do it. 
Wow. I sure love the way with your friends, you always notice how they're feeling. Wow. You have so much persistence. When that didn't work out and you decided you didn't like it, you picked up photography and I'm really loving looking at your images. So it's about us. We get caught up as adults, right? We want our kids to succeed. Darn sure we do. Absolutely. There's no fault in us as parents for wanting that for our kids, but we have to set step back with lantern-like consciousness and not have that spotlight on everything that our kid is doing and how it will factor into whether they get into this college or that college and begin to look at things through their lens. What we really want here is for them to be good humans, right? We want them to be grow up to be good humans. And every message we're sending them should bear that in mind. I sometimes, when I'm talking to parents, I say, you know, leave a little notes, little sticky pads. I always have sticky pads everywhere. Um, you know, and write little notes to your kids as if they might find them if you are no longer here. And that kind of sets the tone for what we're going for here. And when we do this, our kids will find their passions and through their passions, they will find their autonomous voice and something that we call a sense of mastery. And something else will happen too. They will find in their community, their avatars, other grown women who, you know, who, who are, uh, who show the kinds of characteristics that we want our girls to look up to and who will take an interest in them. And this builds this very wide sense of mattering, which Carrie, you touched on in terms of other folks in the community. So those are some ways. There are so many. Right. I loved the identity project and what you just talked about is we can help them find an identity project as Julia did um, as they all did, as Delisa they all did, did with they her poetry did. and and just, poetry, coding, um, yeah. and and civil right, justice, civil ju- civil yes, absolutely social yeah. justice. They just went out and kicked butt, and as they did, they began to also help themselves through very pernicious periods of anxiety and depression and self harm. The mastery. Yeah. Natalie, what's your next question? That was great. Thank you. I took a whole paragraph full of notes. <laughs> it's, it's, I say it better in the book. I'm a better writer. Yeah, but I think all of you're weaving so many things together. Um, and I know you've touched on some of the things that I'm going to say in the next one. And I, I don't know if other parents will identify with this, but I, you've obviously talked about so many external stressors, um, that, you know, boys and girls are going through, um, And some of the hardest questions that my kids ask um, is about why they should have a hope for the future when there is so much that is so scary and so much that is not going well right now. And we all know what they are, but just like you, you do address them some in the book, like climate change and school shootings and politics. And I'm just, I'm wondering if you can give some suggestions for how parents can validate the very real roots of these anxieties, because I I think that's so important that we're not minimizing them. So having things like honesty and compassion in those conversations, but also giving kids hope. Um, Great question. And um, yes, 
as a parent of two young people, this is very much a conversation at our dinner table. And we actually will argue quite a bit about, we have a game, not a game. It's not funny. Something we call one thing. If we just could, we could do one thing, just one thing, you know, what would it be? And we sort of bat it around. And, but um, I, two things come to mind about that. One of the most important factors for flourishing through puberty and adolescence, and this is a deep bow to our mutual friend, Christina Bethel, um, who is the director of child and adolescent health at Hopkins and who has joined me on some book tour events. In fact, she has a fascinating study that the first time I really dug into it, it just floored me. The odds of a child flourishing through adolescence are 12 times higher 12 times higher, even in this extremely difficult world, regardless of the number of adversities a kid was facing. If the answer to this one question was yes, can you turn to a trusted caregiver and talk about anything? So I think that is my first answer, that you're talking about it, because right then we see the amygdala begin to calm down. We see the brain start to realign into a state of biosynchrony, which I write about a lot in the book. But the second thing I want to say is that we have to slow it down, right? We have to slow it down. We have to be the models to find the small moments of joy and wonder. Look, wow, look at the sunset. Let's just sit on the front step together and Watch it go down. You want a piece of chocolate? Yeah. Let's just sit here and do that. And all of those moments in which we ourselves as adults are moving so quickly and we're trying to find that light. I call it find the waterfall. That's my own personal term because where is that waterfall, that moment that we can look at that brightens us with hope? Because really, if we think about being alive on this planet in this time, we want to be active. We want to be out there. We want to be kicking butt. It's why I write books, starting conversations. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. We've got to do it. But we also want to build into our kids a love for being here because what I heard from so many girls wasn't so much that they want, wanted to die. They just weren't sure they wanted to be here. So that doesn't perfectly answer your question, but I think it plays into a really important role that we have as mentors and parents and teachers and therapists. There's another question about um, the impact of having many of the messages that you were talking about coming from, you know, moms and women and whether it would be even more influential if we could get more men to give these messages. So maybe you could talk about that kind of um, relationship so it's interesting. Um, we we know that girls tend to feel less supported in family life than boys do growing up. And I think it's because of the messaging, uh, a lot of which is unconscious. Again, we're all doing our very best as parents. I, I wish, let me, let me just be real here. I really wish I'd written this book when my daughter was nine instead of starting it when she was 19. So if I had known then what I know now, a lot of things would have been different. And I think that she would she would have had a better experience. So I don't say all these things like I know. I had to spend two years in the trenches to know what I know. But I totally agree. And 
I even was thinking as you were talking about the book club groups, we want to get the guys in these book club groups too, right? So for every group of women, you know, who start a book club group, think about starting a group with some men in it because we want this message to sink in. And as I write in the conclusion of the book, you know, what I want for girls is that men at every lever of power ask themselves, if girls don't feel safe, what can I do about it? Whether you run a big tech company like Meta or you're just a jerk while girls are walking by a construction site on the street, or you're one of those professors in college who lets guys hijack the conversation in class because we have a lot of good evidence that boys talk more in college, even when they're when students are asked to raise their hand. So wherever you are at your lever of power as a man, that you under, with this understanding that girls don't feel safe in the world we the adults have made for them, that this is really a problem for their growth, health, and development, that you ask yourself, what would it look like if the girls that are in my circle of influence always felt safe? And that's going to have a lot to do with what comes out of your mouth, just saying. What a great way to look at that with um, the men, because if they're not part of the solution, then they're part of the problem. And that'll get them to be part of the solution. There's another question about if you're familiar with the impact, positive or negative, of anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications on um, pubescent girls. In the well, system. this would be a different book. Um, this would be my book, The Angel and the Assassin, where I did a really deep dive into our new understanding of the brain as an immune organ. And we do have good evidence um, that in some individuals, and every brain is different, every brain is different. But in some and even many individuals, we may see that a course of antidepressants actually helps the brain's immune system regulate, but not for the reasons you think. It has nothing to do with serotonin. It actually has nothing to do with that at all. It may help the brain to dial down in that inflammatory behavior that we see. So again, I tend to write about things that we call science in motion. My job is to start a conversation, which is what we're doing and what you guys, thank you, I love you, are going to take into your communities and dig in and continue and continue to ask hard questions, right? That's the only way change happens. So the things I report in are science in motion, but we have some evidence that it, a course of antidepressants may be helpful. At the same time, we have very good evidence that antidepressants work, really work in about a third of individuals. And we need other other ways of intervening and getting in early. And we also know the earlier we get in, the more we can make a change in the brain development and immune development of young people. Really appreciate that. And that would be the angel and the assassin if you're okay, interested. Great. If you'd like a really deep dive into the machinations of brain in depression, anxiety, stress, and adversity, that is the book for you. Excellent. Thank you. There's a quick question about um, 
Peg's last name or Peggy's last name. Just want to make oh, sure. <laughs> Peg McCarthy. Ma- yeah. McCarthy. McCarthy. And is she with the University of Maryland? Somebody she thinks? Or, okay. So, well, hopefully that answers that yeah. question. <laughs> She's actually just been uh, awarded an enormous um, honor. I think it's called On the Shoulders of Giants by Child Mind Institute. And it's and she not only is a brilliant person and a very good and old friend at this point, because I started interviewing her about a decade ago, um, she also is one of the greatest mentors on the planet. And this is a very special honor for scientists who have mentored generations of scientists who have stood on their shoulders. So anyway, yay, Peg, I hope somebody reaches out and tells you how fabulous you are. (laughs) That's wonderful. Um, There's a question about self-harming for girls. Uh, Let's see, this one comes from Marilyn. Um, Is it possible that they feel less safe in their world since they might not feel safe with themselves? So kind of any thoughts about self-harm and I I would rather not comment on that because um and I'm sorry if you feel that I don't know everything but I don't know everything and self-harm is a really unique form of um intervention what is psychologists and psychotherapists are able to do with self-harm today is really really powerful but I think that that falls a little outside the scope of what I'm doing and I don't want to pretend to be an expert in that that makes so much sense. And uh, thank you for <laughs> thank you for letting us know that we all have, uh, you know, areas like that, too. So here's a question that's more about the book study um, kind of idea and going back to fathers and men. Um, Chris is asking if you think it would be better for fathers to meet on their own or in the mix of mothers and um, great. about felt safety. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I I love that. And I thought about it even as I was speaking and saying, invite men. Well, it it depends on the guy, right? Like you could invite my husband and he would be, hmm, cool. Yes. But there, but there is a sense of unsafety that women can have with, um, with the male, um, the male with what's that old word for it? Mansplaining, right? or the male gaze, or so many ways in which um, we can see women and girls start to silence themselves for reasons that are very old from our own childhoods or, or for whatever reason. So I do think that's a really good question. And no one has asked me that before. And I think I have to have a think on it. I think it would be really cool if there were male study groups, which I just think are going to be smaller than the groups of women. And then they were able to come together at a certain point for some meetings. I know this now sounds really complicated, but but I do think that whoever said that, I, I, I love that you said that. I love all these questions because they're making me think. And I wonder what would be the best paradigm And I think I'd love to hear like what you guys come up with, right? Like I'm so interested in how this plays out in the community, but I wonder about groups of men going through the book and groups of women and then coming together. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think one thing that would be wonderful is is we will be sending out a, um, an evaluation survey. So I, I did put in the chat, the book study, 
um, if you want to get involved in a book study, we would really love to hear about what your plans are, what your ideas Uh are. But then we'll also be sending out an evaluation later uh, in a month or two. And if you can share any of that information with us about how you do it, if you do get men involved, if you get, um, if you, you know, mix them, if you, I think that would be a great way for us to and I'll learn to share that too. Yeah. Yeah, I'll learn something too going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. Um, there's one other question and I'm going to be honest that I'm not exactly sure. So if the person is still on, if they can clarify, that would be great. But any suggestions regarding girls that identify reclaiming personal power with things like only fans and only fans are in quotes. And I'm sorry if I don't know what this is. <laughs> so if you're on, or maybe Donna, you know. <laughs> it, it was me. I mean, I can, can y'all hear me? Yes. <laughs> um, I work with a lot of survivors, a lot of young women, a lot, a lot of teenagers. I've been doing it for a long time. I love this whole idea because I worked in fertility before I was a social worker. So this is like all right up my alley. Um, But anyway, um, OnlyFans is, it's like a social media platform that girls can, well, guys can do it too, but you can like send pictures and people pay you. And it's, yeah. And so a lot of my girls that are survivors, they're like, hey, I'm making money off of this. They're not seeing my face. They're just paying me. They don't know who I am. And I had one one young lady who tried to explain it in such a way. She's like, hey, Miss Lisa, you know, did you ever sit in a bar when you were my age and let some guy buy you drinks and buy you drinks all night that you had no intention of giving him your number? You had no intention of dating him, but you let him buy you drinks all night. And I was like, I did. (laughs) And that's kind of like what they equate it to. It's like, no, I don't have any intention of doing anything, but they're paying me, so I'm going to let them. And I just didn't know if your research with social media, if you guys had touched on anything, because it blows my mind and I don't know how to combat that logic. Well, I think that, first of all, I feel really sad when I hear that. I feel really sad um, having raised a girl and also the many, many girls, her friends coming through the house, that sense of going on vacations with us, just that sense of already being under the male gaze and how um, it takes you out of yourself and your sense of embodiment and connection to yourself. And so it seems to me that this is one more way of disembodiment by becoming an image for sale. And we know that that's not good for girls to feel disembodied from their own body. We want them to have a sense of embodiment. So I feel really sad when I hear it, but I don't feel judgy because why would I judge? It's not, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're working with these girls every day and girls have suffered a lot of harm in our world. And it's not for me to say what's right or what's wrong for an individual girl. It's only right for me to say that we understand that this disembodiment through being evaluated for your body under the male gaze is not healthy for identity and development. And I think that's how I would leave my answer. I I just want to clarify, it's not just the male gaze. Because the, the the first young lady who told me about it, she's she's lesbian. Okay. And so these are other women. 
absolutely still it's the extrinsic gaze it's an anonymous body part which has upped your value and so we know on tiktok that the more girls take off clothes at younger ages the more followers they have so I think there's a similarity there. And we begin to see with that extrinsic evaluation, a loss of that sense of autonomy and mastery and identity, which we don't want to see during these years. But that is not to judge. It's simply to put it in a health framework. Right. And it's too, and here I'm not the expert, but the further objectification and when we play a part in objectification, um, it's it's. I, I I share the sadness, and one thing I feel sad about this. How is this for a segue? Is that it's four twenty nine, and so our time is oh. <laughs> up. Which just how did that happen? I mean, honest to God, I could go get another cup of tea and sit here with you guys for a long time. But what I hope happens from this is, first of all, that you'll look for those three little dots down in the chat and save the chat if you'd like to do that. And then also that um, by saving the chat, you'll have the links to the documents that we put together for you, including the link to Donna's um, beautiful book study guide. No, you won't have that, but we'll send that in the email. Thank you, Natalie, for keeping me on track. And that um, you'll look for the email from us. We will um, saving this recording and we'll be sending it out to the people who couldn't attend and to you all as well. And in that email, there will be the links to the documents. So if everyone will join me, I'd love to just do this. Go to your little reactions and put a heart up for Donna Jackson Nakazawa, just like I just did, if you can. And um, we'll take a picture of that and uh, and save that because it'll be so sweet. And um, Donna, thank you again. You're a hero of mine. I do love The Angel and the Assassin. It did just absolutely rock my world. But this book I love so much as well. And I love your ending because there is hope. And um, I love your partnership with Christina Bethel on the seven positive childhood experiences and everything about this book. Um, it uh, It just brought me great joy. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.